and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Motion Denied, Nagarjuna on Change. Janardan and I agree about most things. We both believe that Indian philosophy is incredibly fascinating and that Buster Keaton's silent films are works of genius. Well, I assume Janardan thinks this. I haven't actually asked him. We part ways, however, when it comes to the relative merits of giraffes and crocodiles. To his credit, Janardan is unfailingly polite on the subject of giraffes, whereas I am somewhat more grudging in my admiration of crocodiles, but we each have a clear preference. To settle the matter, we recently agreed to organize a race between Gina and Hiawatha. Gina being a crocodile, her legs are on the short side, so we allowed her a head start. Janardin was confident that, despite her fleetness of hoof, Hiawatha could not possibly overtake Gina. I assumed that he must have been reading Zeno of Alea, the ancient Greek thinker who invented a series of paradoxes to challenge the possibility of motion. According to Zeno, Gina's lead cannot be overcome, because Hiawatha would always first need to arrive at the point recently occupied by Gina, by which time Gina would have made further forward progress. It turned out, though, that Janardin was not thinking of Zeno at all. He'd actually been reading Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna was not the first Indian thinker to deny the possibility of motion. In his great commentary on Panani, the grammarian Patanjali refers to a teaching that motion is not an objectively real thing. It is a mere conceptual construct used to explain the fact that things arrive at a given place. This same idea is maintained by Nagarjuna in the second chapter of his Verses on the Middle Way. He applies his Prasanga dialectical method to two questions about motion, arguing that they are unanswerable. Where are movements located, and when do they begin? His aim, as usual, is to show us that our concept of motion is an empty one, and as usual, scholars disagree about the purpose of his arguments. Is Nagarjuna saying that human cognition is simply not up to the job of conceiving the world correctly, and that we should stop trying, or that our conventional idea of motion needs to be replaced with some more refined philosophical theory, which avoids postulating intrinsic essences in things? Some help in interpreting him is offered by the Madhyamaka commentator Chandrakirti, who does much to elaborate Nagarjuna's discussion. So, we will also refer to him, while bearing in mind that his reading is only one possible interpretation of Nagarjuna's verses. Our first question is, where are movements located? We can approach this question with the help of those same Sanskrit grammarians. They tell us that verbal roots may refer to either actions or events, and that actions and events may be located, either where the agent is, or where the object of the verb is. Thus a verb like enter could refer to the event of Janardin's walking into a racetrack to watch a contest between a giraffe and a crocodile. The event of his entering is located where he is located, namely at the gate. By contrast, a verb like hit would refer to an action which is located in the thing being hit, such as the gong that Peter strikes to signal the start of the race. Presupposing these grammatical notions, Nagarjuna says that if we imagine someone traveling, we can say that the traveler travels the place that is being traveled. The verb travel marks an event, namely the event of traveling, which is located in the place where the traveling happens, perhaps a spot on a road. In fact, Nagarjuna proposes there are two things going on here. 
the place of traveling is being traveled, and the traveler is traveling. So far, so common sense. But this is Nagarjuna who likes to use common sense as a jumping-off point for one of his prasanga refutations. If we take the path of emotion, such as Gina's rather slow progress along a 100-meter track, then we can divide it into three portions, the part already traversed, the part yet to be traversed, and the part currently being traversed. Which of these portions is the location of the event that is Gina's motion? Obviously not the first or the second, since the place currently being traversed cannot be the place that she has already managed to traverse, or the place she has not yet reached, so the motion must be occurring in the place that is just now being moved across. But this too is impossible, thinks Nagarjuna. Chandra Kirti explains the reasoning as follows. Every point on the path of motion is either a point not yet traversed, or a point yet to be traversed, and there is no portion of the path left over to accommodate the current motion. This argument is reminiscent of a skeptical argument about time we have seen before, in Gautama's Nyaya Sutra, that past and future do not currently exist, while the present has no duration, being merely the dividing line between past and future. If you don't find that convincing, here's another argument. Consider again the sentences, the place of traveling is being traveled, and the place of movement is being traversed. Nagarjuna points out that such sentences are redundant. It is like saying, I am where I am, which coincidentally is what Popeye would say if he were a GPS navigation device. Or like replying to the question, where was the race held, by saying, it happened where the race took place. Such statements make no substantive claim at all, any more than does someone who claims to have solved a crime by saying that it was committed by whoever perpetrated the crime. Similar considerations can be brought to bear against the claim that the mover moves. This statement is what philosophers call a tautology. It is guaranteed to be true, but at the price of being uninformative, like saying the bachelor is unmarried. It is useless to point to Hiawatha as she sprints along a racetrack and say, the running Hiawatha is running. On the other hand, if Hiawatha is not running, then it is false to point to her and say that she is running. It seems then that there is no way to truly and informatively say that she is running. A way around this might be to suggest that there is some further motion. The thought here seems to be that we can explain Hiawatha's running by saying that there is a second motion that makes her to be running. But if there are two motions, surely there should be two things moving and not only one. Or perhaps not. Can't the one giraffe Hiawatha be the subject of numerous actions and motions, as when she simultaneously runs, hears the cheering crowds, and narrows her eyes as she glares ahead at her opponent Gina? Chandra Kirti's answer to this objection trades on a subtlety of Sanskrit grammatical theory. We can say numerous things about an axe, such as, the axe is made of metal, he sees the axe, and he cuts the tree with the axe. In these three statements, one and the same object, the axe, is playing different grammatical roles in relation to a verb. First it is the agent, then the direct object, then the instrument. So these various statements refer to the axe only insofar as it adopts these different roles. To speak of cutting a tree with an axe is to refer to the axe as instrument, not the axe as object of vision. Likewise, the running Hiawatha is not identical to the hearing Hiawatha or the seeing Hiawatha, 
Only the running Hiawatha is Hiawatha insofar as she exercises the capacity to run. The same observation can be applied to the place where Hiawatha is running. Insofar as Hiawatha is traversing that place, it is not just a patch of ground, but a spot being traveled over. This is an illuminating explanation of Nagarjuna's compressed argument. The problem is not simply that it is trivial and uninformative to say that the place being traveled over is being traveled over, and that the mover moves. It is also that this uninformative explanation is actually the only way to describe what is happening, for it is only the thing insofar as it is moving that moves, only the running Hiawatha who runs. Notice that this whole line of argument can easily be applied to phenomena other than motion. To go back to our example from last time, if Mick Jagger sees a red door and wants it painted black, then he sees the door insofar as it is seen, and wants it painted black only insofar as it is the object of his desire. When Nagarjuna tackles the subject of motion, here towards the beginning of his verses on the middle way, he's giving us a first taste of the idea of dependent origination, the motion of running is dependent on, or cannot exist without, running Hiawatha, and vice versa. The same style of argument is later used to show that an object of vision is co-originated with an act of seeing, and the object of desire co-originated with a desire. Jan Vestehof has thus written that the chapter on movement was not meant to be a specific investigation of the problem of motion and the various structural properties of time and place, Rather, it uses the discussion of motion as an example to illustrate an argumentative template which can be used in a variety of different contexts. Assuming that we have reconstructed Nagarjuna's argument correctly, we can now ask whether there is any way to escape it. It may seem that the answer is obviously yes. All we need to do is distinguish between, on the one hand, the various roles that Hiawatha can perform, and on the other hand, Hiawatha herself. The fact that Hiawatha plays different grammatical functions in different statements does not show what Chandrakirti seems to think it does, namely that it is impossible for us to form a notion of Hiawatha in herself. Nor need we deny that one in the same patch of ground on a racetrack could first be the place occupied by Gina, and then a few seconds later, the place occupied by Hiawatha. But of course, this reply presupposes the very idea that Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka philosophy is devoted to undermining. It presupposes that there are, in fact, things in themselves, like the substances recognized by Vaisheshika, or for that matter Aristotle, which can take on and then lose various properties and relations. As we saw last time, Nagarjuna offers a powerful challenge to this way of thinking, namely that any way of describing a so-called substance will need to invoke some property with which the substance, as so described, is mutually interdependent. And Sanskrit grammar would seem to agree with him. If you cannot frame a sentence about Hiawatha, or a patch of ground, without associating it somehow with a certain verb, then you cannot refer to these things without treating them as playing a certain role, which is marked by the grammar of a sentence. A second line of argument offered by Nagarjuna seems to be more specifically concerned with the nature of motion itself, rather than being just one example of a more general strategy. Here he turns to the other question we mentioned at the outset, when do motions begin? Nagarjuna, of course, wants to show that any answer to this question is bound to be incoherent. Let's consider the very start of the race when Gina starts to run, well, waddle. As before, we may make a threefold division. There is a period of time at which Gina's waddling has not yet occurred, another period of time while her waddling is taking place, and a third period of time at which she has already finished waddling. 
and which of these three does her motion begin? Obviously not in the time before she begins her ponderous journey, since at that point she is still waiting to hear the starter's gong. Just as obviously she does not begin moving in the time after she has already moved, but neither does she begin to waddle while she is moving, since once she is underway she must already have started. The implication is that she does not begin to move at all, which means that Hiawatha should have a good chance of catching her if only she could begin moving herself. Here we can see why many scholars have sought to compare Nagadruna with Zeno. As you may recall from the early episodes of the History of Philosophy podcast, Zeno's paradoxes of motion included the argument that an arrow in flight can never reach its target, since at each moment the arrow is, as Zeno puts it, against something equal. He probably means that, in a durationless instant of time, the arrow occupies a spatial extension identical in size to the arrow's own size. At one instant, the arrow cannot get from one spatial region to the next. But if this is true at every instant, then it cannot move at all. Thus, as Tom Stoppard observed, St. Sebastian died of fright. Now, Nagadrina's argument is indeed reminiscent of Zeno's. Not only would it license the similar conclusion that all the warriors slain by Adruna's bow in the Mahabharata likewise died of fright, it also turns on the same problem about the relation between motion and an unextended part of time. Yet Nagarjuna is not making quite the same point. He is asking about the time at which motion begins, and not just any instant at which motion supposedly occurs. Indeed, a closer comparison from Greek philosophy may be Aristotle's worry about the end of a change. At the moment when a change is completed, the change is no longer going on. Furthermore, if we step back and consider the whole battery of arguments offered by Nagarjuna, especially if we follow the interpretation of Chandrakirti, we see that they are unlike Zeno's in that they are inspired by grammar. We might say that Nagarjuna focuses not so much on the question whether motion is a coherent concept, but on whether language can consistently and informatively describe motion. Sentences about motion appear to have the same logical form as sentences describing actions and events. He takes this to mean that the motion, like any action or event, is located at a place and at a time. But motion is precisely a displacement during a passage of time, so the attempt to fix just one location or moment for any motion is doomed to failure. We might introduce an artificial way of speaking in order to evade the contradiction, as when physicists designate points of space and time using a coordinate system, yet this would be just to concede Nagarjuna's point that natural languages have inadequate resources for describing motion. As we said, Nagarjuna uses the same style of argument to unmask the emptiness of things other than motion. A comparable discussion concerns cognition, which is a particularly central issue since it is the bone of contention between him and his Nyaya critics. Again, Nagarjuna exploits the rules of Sanskrit grammar, which force us to treat verbs of thinking and knowing as acts that happen to an agent, just like motion does. In his refutation of my opponents, Nagarjuna attempts to undermine the concept of knowledge by attacking the notion of giving a proof. As you might recall from our discussion of Gautama's Nyaya epistemology, we are justified in reaching our beliefs on the basis of a means of knowing, or pramana, such as sensation or the faculty of reason. The thing known by such a legitimate means is called a prameya. So here we have the instrument and direct object that go with a verb of knowing. 
Just as Jannardin restrains Gina by using the instrument of a leash in order that she doesn't bite Hiawatha in anger after losing the race, so Jannardin knows that Gina is dark green by using the instrument of his eyesight. Here Jannardin is the knower, Gina the object known, or Pramaya, and Jannardin's vision is the Pramana, that means by which knowledge is achieved. Now, like an angered crocodile, Nagadrina strikes. We have just said that everything we know is known through some instrument by which knowledge is achieved. But how do we reach knowledge concerning these instruments, in particular the knowledge that they are reliable? If Jannardin is to know that Gina is green by using his eyesight, surely he also needs to know that his eyesight can be trusted. If he appeals to some further instrument of knowing, by which he reassures himself that his vision is indeed functioning properly, then he might still worry about that further instrument. Thus we have an infinite regress, with each pramana standing in need of confirmation by a further pramana. That at least is Nagarjuna's basic idea, as we have mentioned in a previous episode on skeptical arguments. But let's look more carefully at the way he mounts his challenge, since it is such a good illustration of his argumentative technique. As usual, Nagarjuna begins by classifying all possible responses to his own question, which, in this case, is the question how a pramana can be established as reliable. One option is that such a source of knowledge may be validated intrinsically, that is, without any reference to things that are known. There are three ways this might happen. First, a source of knowledge might be validated by another source of knowledge. This is where Nagarjuna invokes the infinite regress. Second, we might simply insist that sources of knowledge do not require validation. This is, one could argue, the whole point of distinguishing between a pramaya and a pramana. The object needs to be established, the source or means of knowledge does not. Nagarjuna rules this out, though, on the basis of our starting assumption that whatever is known must be known through some means. After all, if things can simply be known without assurance from a means of knowledge, why do we need the pramana in the first place? Furthermore, what is the basis for distinguishing between the pramana that supposedly needs no verification and the prameya that does? Any pramana, such as vision, can become a prameya. When I am asked to read the optician's chart, this is a test that seeks to establish whether or not my eyesight is functioning well. The final option is that each means of knowledge is self-validating. It establishes itself along with other objects of knowledge that it makes known. Thus, for instance, eyesight would have to guarantee its own reliability even as it makes known visible objects. It would be like a fire that illuminates both itself and other things. To this, Nagarjuna retorts that it is meaningless to say that fire is illuminated. Fire is the source of light, whereas what is illuminated is what receives light from such a source. To suppose that a pramana can make itself known, the way it makes other things known, is like saying that an axe cuts itself. Again, the underlying thought here is really a grammatical one. If the source of knowledge plays the role of instrument for the action of knowing, then it cannot also play the role of the object for that action. So much for the idea that sources of knowledge are validated intrinsically. Might they instead be justified extrinsically, that is, in relation to the objects of knowledge? This time, there are only two alternatives to consider. First, we might suppose that the source of knowledge is actually validated by its own objects. This may sound a bit bizarre, but the idea is actually quite straightforward. 
He simply means that vision, for example, is validated so long as it represents visible objects the way that they really are. We might say that the source of knowledge is corroborated by its correspondence to the things it makes known. But this, says Nagarjuna, is to assume the very thing at issue, namely that the objects of knowledge are established. This was precisely the job of the pramana, so it cannot be assumed as a basis for confirming the pramana itself. The opponent would be committing the logical fallacy called siddha sadhana, proving what is already proven. This leaves only one further option for the opponent, but it is entirely unpromising. We might suppose that the sources of knowledge and the objects known are mutually interdependent. Actually, this sounds pretty congenial to Madhyamaka, but as Nagarjuna points out, it is hopeless as a theory of justification that his opponent would want to adopt, since it is obviously circular. The result of all this is, apparently, to let us know that nothing can be known. Oops. It looks like we have another case where Nagarjuna seems to be refuting himself. How can I know that knowledge is impossible? How can a complex set of logical arguments be given for the conclusion that no conclusion can ever be established by reason or by any other means? Nagarjuna might respond that he is simply using the methods of his opponents against them. If the whole exercise is an internal critique of the justificatory system put forth by philosophers like Gautama, then it can establish the incoherence of that system without implying any commitment to the system on Nagarjuna's part. This is actually quite a familiar phenomenon. Consider an anti-democratic political movement trying to come to power through a democratic election, a poem about the impossibility of writing poetry, or even phrases like, I cannot recommend Buster Keaton films highly enough, which I might say precisely to get across with sufficient emphasis how strongly I recommend them. It seems then that Nagarjuna can avoid being bitten by his own snake. The complex arguments about motion and knowledge that we've examined in this episode always feature a set of options that are laid out and then eliminated one by one. This is entirely characteristic of Nagarjuna. We've mentioned already the word prasanga, the kind of destructive argument which reduces empty concepts to absurdity. But we haven't yet talked about Nagarjuna's most important contribution to logic and argument theory. He frequently deploys a style of negative proof with four options, each of which is made the subject of refutation. Scholars call the argument form a tetralemma. With the help of this argument technique, you should be able to prove anything so long as what you want to prove is that someone else is talking nonsense, which hopefully will not be your response to the next episode about Nagarjuna's logic here on the history of philosophy in India. <laughs>